0: Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. I am talking to Stephen Liu. Stephen is from Singapore. He's an angel investor living in Fukuoka. Stephen invests out of an entity called the Cosmic Cafe of which he is a co-founder. Did I get that right, Stephen?
1: That's correct, right, Michael. Good morning to you.
0: How are you this morning? You're good, good. So why don't you give um, us a little bit of background, just maybe just about how you even got to Fukuoka and how you started investing from an angel perspective in startup companies in um, in Asia.
1: Okay. Um, well, there are a lot of questions in there. Let's yeah. let's um, take it from how I ended up in Fukuoka. Um, so my wife and I visited Fukuoka the first time in 2014. Um, okay. We We came to Fukuoka to... Take a ride on a, on a train that was going to nowhere, it was just circling around Kyushu Island. Um, after the train ride, um, we took another walk around the city, stayed a few days, um, really fell in love with the place. Um, and then we came back again, um, a year later to do, you know, more sightseeing, get to know the people. But throughout this time, back in around about 2014, um, I've just left eBay where I have spent you know, almost eight years as its um, Associate General Counsel for Asia. So at eBay, we obviously very much involved in technology. Um, I had an opportunity to look at a lot of startups, um, got involved in quite a few mergers and acquisitions. Um, so when I left, my wife and I started um, doing a little bit of angel investment on a side,
0: Um so that was back in 2014. What does that mean on the side? Because I, I just want to differentiate between what on the side means and what you're doing now, because it's slightly different, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely very different. So after I left eBay in 2014, I joined um, a consulting firm. It's a public affairs and communication firm. We basically help companies, organization deal with you know all the external affairs challenges that they may have. So that was my full-time gig, but at the same time, my interest in uh, in the whole startup ecosystem um, has been piqued since my uh, eight years in eBay. So while I while I was having a full-time job at this consulting firm, I was also spending some of my part-time, you know, some of my free time on the weekends at night. Um, talking to startups, talking to investors, talking to people who run accelerators, and and really getting to know the startup game. Um, And then we started investing in a couple of them, um, and and that got me interested. Now, fast forward three years later to 2017, um, we're now doing this full-time. My wife came from a finance background. Um, Devin spent many years in the um, finance and investment uh, industry, I spent almost 20 years or so in, in the legal industry and public affairs. So we decided to combine our forces, you know, combine experience and knowledge and, and try to do this full time. And that's that's how we launched uh, Cosmic Cafe, our private investment firm.
0: Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show. Yeah, and it's hard. It would have been hard, actually, back then in Singapore to kind of stay away from startups and investing. It's something that seems to have really taken over a lot of the mentality in Singapore, to be fair, right?
1: Yeah, I think 2014 was really the, um, you know, it's, it sounds a bit um, cliche, but it was really the inflection point for yep. the startup industry in Singapore. I mean, it's been a long time coming. You know, we it, it didn't happen overnight. The government, the private sector, um, have both been working very hard at trying to, you know, recreate a new Singapore. Moving, you know, we started off a long, long time ago as a trading hub. Eventually, we became a manufacturing hub when we first um, became independent. And then, at some point, turned into a financial hub. But after the financial crisis um, of 2008, I think there's been a lot of realization that, you know, we need to create real jobs, real quality jobs. And we need to be positioning ourselves um, in a way that will capture the next wave of jobs that will be created. Um, and technology seems to be the, the right space uh, for the country and also for a lot of businessmen in, in Singapore.
0: Yeah, and so when, I I agree, and I mean, I don't want to make that too fine a point, but it it always seemed to me, and I should say that my first time in Singapore was probably the, what I'll call the springtime of 1990, so a long time ago, Mm -hmm. and yeah, it it always seemed to me that Singapore was always focused on, you know, because of its founding and the way it sort of began, and because of its really strong and sort of forward-looking leadership, it almost always seemed to me like a little bit of a startup country in a way, in the sense that you know, there was a powerful CEO with a really strong management team, always out looking for, I wouldn't say always, but like, what's the next pivot? What's the, what's the next thing that's coming and how do we go out and do that better than everybody else? And I think that that was, like you said, whether it was manufacturing at the beginning, becoming a financial hub, I think they were very successful at doing that. But on the other hand, it also seemed like a really conservative place. So this move into angel investing and startup investing, also took a little bit of a change of mentality, I guess, to to a certain extent. Um, yep, and, and that's also been very interesting for me to watch as well. Um, well how would you characterize, and why do you think it makes sense to move from Singapore then into a place like Fukuoka? And I, I have my own ideas, and I don't think it's a bad thing. Actually, I think it's a fabulous thing. I'm just curious what the thought process was there. In other words, why take the angel investment process and move it to another country?
1: Well, um, I think the the fact that we have been investing since twenty fourteen in Singapore or from Singapore um, has a lot to do with it. Um, as in any, whether you're running a VC, a family office, or your own private investment fund, um, deal sourcing is very important. Yeah, very uh, right. having having a regular flow of good deals. Um, having a good network of, um, collaborators, partners, friends, you know, just people, fellow investors who, who bring you into good deals. That's very important. And I think we, we spent a good deal of time in, in Singapore, you know, since 2014, almost three years building that network, um, building that, that ecosystem for ourselves such that, um, we, we would inevitably be able to get our, you know, fingers into the right um, deal that comes along um, from Singapore. But spending having spent those three years in Singapore, I also found that a lot of my deals were Southeast Asia-focused or India-focused. One or two of them came from Australia. But I wasn't seeing anything coming from Northeast Asia, from China, from Korea, from Japan, from Hong Kong, from Taiwan. Um, so that got me and my and my wife Devin, you know, both of us sat there and say, "Hey, there's there's something wrong with our portfolio. It's too you know too skewed towards one geography. Let's let's look at what else can we do." So the option really was moving to a place like China, which is the most logical. But we've been there and done that. You know, when we were much younger, we lived in, in different parts of China for more than ten years. So then the, wow. the next question was, okay, where else can we be close to the action but not really in the midst of the action? Um, and, you know, it was really it come down to a choice of two cities. We were looking at Taichung uh, very seriously, and then the other city was Fukuoka, which we have visited a few times. And we have read up a lot about how the mayor is, um you know, promoting Fukuoka as, as the startup city for Asia. Right. So when you when you plot the map, um, plot Fukuoka on the map, um, it's it's actually a pretty good location to be close to Japan, but not really you know too much sucked into the orbit of Tokyo and everything that goes on around there. And it's the same distance from Tokyo to let's say Shanghai or to um, to Taiwan, Hong Kong or to Seoul, you know, relatively same distance. Um, And then when when we looked at that, we say, hey maybe it makes sense so that, you know, because we are, we we have a pretty stable deal flow coming in Singapore, we know the people there, both in government and, and also in business, um, let's go to a new place to try to expand our reach a little bit. Um, and that's why, that's, why we we decided to move ourselves of Fukuoka.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you know this, but I've been to Fukuoka twice in the last like few months, and I, I just think what hap- what's happening there is amazing. And you just make so many great points. You know, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it, right? Because that's not the focus here. But you do make some really great points about just its location, its geography, its you know style of life, and all the things about it. It's in Japan, but not too Japanese in a way. But so it's the closest Japanese city to the rest of Asia, so you get the benefit of that. And let's just say this too, and then we'll move on because I have some other questions about what you've already just said, but also the international airport is really usable and it's, you know, five minutes away from the center of the city. So it's just so, such a convenient place to be. And I do find as well, look, I live in Bangkok, right? And I sometimes find I'm too close to the storm in a way, right? Yep. And I think that that incumbents a, l- a few biases as well. And sometimes it's better to look at things from the outside and it allows you to make better decisions. Um, So it sounds like a a fascinating choice to me, and and Mm -hmm. probably a super good one, yeah. So can you can can we back up for a second? How did you go about build? Because I think this, and you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, do you and Devin invest alone? In other words, you know, there's a there's an angel syndicate investing mechanism that exists in some places. Some angels just want to you know leave me alone. I want to do this by by myself, and in your case, by ourselves. But how do you build that network? And then do you invest as a syndicate with that network? Do you invest by yourself? And how, how did that happen?
1: Um, I, I don't think we can do this by ourselves.
0: Um, I agree. And, and look, I have yeah. a phrase for this. I don't think anybody succeeds alone, right? But some people no, really want can. to be like yeah. a lone wolf, but you guys don't, right?
1: <laughs> no, I, I always have this phrase whenever I meet anyone, I say it takes a whole village to raise a startup. It does. Um, same goes for, you know, for investors, you know, we we are we alone um, can find all the startups, and even when we found the right startup, we can fund all the startups that we like. Um, so one of the first thing that we did back in 2014 was to actively seek out fellow angel investors in the world. Um, we did not restrict ourselves to Singapore. We decided to join a angel investment group um, that was actually founded in Shanghai, but by a by a few founders that were, that were not native of China. You know, they, they came to China, they liked it there, they, they stayed. Um, and then, you know, they in the investment business or the startup business and they co-founded an angel network called AngelVest. So we joined AngelVest, um, started learning from really, really great mentors and, and fellow investors. Um, you know, it wasn't just um, being part of a syndicate that, that really matters to us. It was more the sharing of knowledge, sharing of experience, Um, looking at how more experienced angel investors or even more experienced VCs um, uh, focus on what they want to do. We have since carried on working with this group. um, We have recently just co-invested in a company out of Canada together with AngelVest. Um, And I think the, the key really is to do the same thing I'm I'm trying to do the same thing here in uh, Japan. You know, to to get to know other investors, get to know other VCs, um, get to know where the where the network is, and then hopefully the the sharing of deals, sharing of experience also happen here in uh, Fukuoka.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think this whole concept of getting a group of experienced people together, whether you end up being the mentor or you end up being mentored, I think is slightly irrelevant, as you said. But I think having a core strong group of angel investors upon which you can lean and they can lean on you as well. Here's the thing for me, right? I think from an angel investing standpoint, you said some of this, but I just want to say it explicitly. As an angel, an individual, right, without sort of an institution behind you, you need to make sure of three things, right? One is, are you seeing the best deals? And like you said, it doesn't just mean the best deals in your hometown. It's the best deals really anywhere. And your network should include local, I think, regional and global to a certain extent yep. because even if you're not investing in you know, Tennessee the person who is there and is investing there may be able to teach you something you hadn't considered before just because of the difference in, in the investment climate in their geography so that's the first thing is are you seeing all the best deals mm-hmm. the second is how do you know if you are seeing the best deals? Do you know what I mean? In other words, <laughs> yeah. right? You, know, you, you don't know. So again, like you, and, and again, one of the great reasons to move outside of Singapore is you just get so biased by what's going on around you, right? I mean, I, I call that the bias of proximity. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my God, the greatest things in the world are only happening within, you know, 20 kilometers of my house. And that's not always true. It's the easiest thing to do. And a lot of people, yeah. I think, fall into that trap, but not necessarily the best way to invest. We, we, and we could argue about that for a long time. But that's kind of the second thing is, you know, just knowing what the best deals are, what they should look like, right? And again, that comes with the network, I think. Having a great network is really important for that. And the third thing is, can I get into the best deals, right? In other words, if you're sitting around and you hear about this Airbnb thing or pick anyone, you know, Garina or Grab, and you say to yourself, that's going to be amazing, but I I can't get in. right? And I think that's where the network really, really comes into play. And so... Those three things I think are what really help if you're in the right network. No.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the you know all all three points are uh, extremely critical to what we do. Um, You know, seeing the best deal, um, knowing what is the best deal, and and also getting into the best deal. I think the the fact that we have a great network of peers. And also a great network of startups that we have either invested in or we have spent time mentoring the, the founders or working working with the management team to advise them on certain things. All of these um, contacts that we have made, um, I, I'd say uh, the, the real reason why we feel confident that we can do this successfully in a different city, um, because we know that we can always lean on them, um, because we know that... We have, we have, in our own small little way, paid for it to, to these people. Right. And at some point, these guys will remember us and say, hey, you know, there was this dinner, this pizza dinner I had with um, Devin and Steven at their house right. in, in back in Singapore. And, you know, they told me they, they, they love all this kind of stuff. And they'll, you know, drop me an email and say, hey, look, my friend is studying something like this. Do you want to take a look? These right. are the kind of amazing deals that come your way if you pay for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a concept. So I was talking to somebody else about this a little bit yesterday, right? As a matter of fact, a lot. I had two different conversations on this topic. I spent so much time. um, So I've been working with this guy, Jerome LeCarrou. I mean, I just want to say it explicitly. And, you know, the only benefit that either one of us gets from it is that we meet weekly. I mentor him and I learn from him as well in a way. And I think this is really key, right? There's this concept of like knowing everything or just wanting to learn everything. And I was reading about it yesterday. I wish I could remember where. And I, I gained so much by just sitting with Jerome Weekly, helping him with his company. He's running one company, building another company. And oh, wow. yeah, he's, he's really amazing actually. And through him, you know, I meet a bunch of other entrepreneurs, but also a bunch of other investors and a bunch of sort of not so like-minded thinking people, right? Um that are very different, whether it's in the PR space, in the education space, in the tech space. Um, and I try to actively use those relationships just to be able to benefit other people. And like you said, I think this whole concept of paying forward actually ends up being really important in life in general, for sure, but specifically to angel investing because you're just constantly helping people and mentoring people, and they can see that in you. And that's why one of the reasons why I think people want to be associated with you and with Devin as well is because That sort of natural ability to be able to help, I don't think actually can be taught. Um, So I think that that concept of paying forward is really important. And further to that, I just want to understand a little bit better, and I can explain to you how I do it, but I'm really curious how you do it. Like this deal flow concept, right? Do you go out and actively look for deal flow? So does that mean you're going to conferences or meetups and stuff like that as well? Or have you reached the point where after building this network, there's just so much information coming to you that you're too busy filtering and curating?
1: Um, I I don't think I'm I'm at a point where I'm I'm finding the deal flow a bit too much. We're still going out. Um, We're still um, attending pitch competition, going to conferences, going to events. Um, More to stay in touch with what's next. Um, And then, you know, trying to also get the word out there that we are here, um, we are available, we are looking for interesting stuff to do. So because, after all, Fukuoka is still relatively a new uh, place for me, uh, for Cosmic Cafe, we've only been here for slightly more than half a year. Um, we still need to get to know more people within the the startup ecosystem here in Fukuoka and also in Japan. Um, uh, I don't make a real effort to fly back to Singapore as often, right. Um I only you know go back once every few months, but every time we're back, you know we'll, we'll definitely spend time within the ecosystem talking to our contacts, getting to know new friends, checking out new accelerators, new co-working spaces, just to just to see. Where where the new stuffs are coming? You know what what are people talking about? What are the what are the interesting next um, batch of new startups coming from? Um, so I think that that's something that we're we're doing. But it's also a balance of making sure that we are not um, overstretching ourselves. Um, right, because that
0: that we, that's possible, yeah. right? I mean, I've seen that. Yeah,
1: it's possible. I mean, there's only twenty four hours a day, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> sometimes it seems. Sometimes it seems like there's less, right? Um, so over the past, you know, three or four years, while you've been angel investing, what can you just characterize some of the things that you've learned? Maybe things that you thought you knew but were different, and that you've sort of taken away from some of the mentors and friends that you've met over over the last period of time.
1: Um, I think there were there are some valuable lessons that we have paid um,
0: along the way yeah paid is a good uh, word actually <laughs> it's, 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 I, I call it tuition but that's fair tuition
1: enough tuition is Yeah, and you know I I, some, I try not to make too much out of it and say okay fine you know we, we failed in this investment or this investment has failed sure. what are the lessons learned um, some of the lessons learned could be applied but, um, to other cases but I think for me a couple of things um, stand out go ahead I and mean, you know, one of one of the most important things for me now is um, when I when a entrepreneur comes to speak to me about fundraising, I I, I really want to see you know uh, a drive in that person. You know, it's not it's not just someone that comes to me with an idea. You know, the question is really is this going to be his or her preoccupation for every single waking hours that he he or she has? Right. Uh, You know, it's gonna, it's gonna be so all consuming. It's all about, you know, I want to make this work. I think that kind of drive, um, is very important to, for a startup to succeed. And, and I think of the, the startups that we've invested in and, and, and they failed partly because I think, um, the founders have, have too high regards of, their idea. They, they <laughs> think that the idea is unique. They think that they can just build it and it will come. But that's not true. No, it's not. You still, think you still need to go sell the damn thing.
0: Right. I mean, look, ideas are free, right? Yes. And, and I think... And I and I always say this too, like nobody has a monopoly on the right idea, and and your your idea, and not you, Stephen, but the, the general idea is not a new idea, right? It's yeah. just how can you execute this, and this I think gets back to what you were talking about, and that is just are you completely preoccupied with it? And I actually think that's a better word than the word most people use is are you passionate about it? Because having a passion about something, right? Like I have a passion about I don't know American football, but I'm not preoccupied <laughs> with it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean I've got a passion for yoga, but doesn't mean I want to do yoga 24-7 or, <laughs> exactly. or, or make I'm money not thinking out of about yoga. it all the time. <laughs> right. You know, I, and I think that, that's something which, um, interestingly, I learned that lesson from one of my failed investment. And I also learned that lesson from advising, you know, one of the biggest unicorn, um, you know, well, a couple of the biggest unicorns in, 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 the world right now. You know, I've got the, um, I, good fortune of advising Uber when they first launch in Asia. Wow. Um, and then subsequently, when my relationship with Uber ended, um, I also had the you know good fortune of.
0: Steven, say that again.
1: And when I Stephen that again, you
0: said you also had the good fortune of
1: working for uh, advising Grab.
0: Okay, great. So two companies that are you know similar enough that yeah, there's transferable experience there. So uh, can I ask you this? Just jump in for a second. How, well, how did you build that relationship with Grab?
1: Um, coming, you know, you just come back to the same thing that I talked about: having that network, yep. um, paying ahead. it forward. Um, one of my one of my contacts in, in Grab was someone I've known for a long, long time. Um, she's actually a classmate of my youngest brother. Right. Um, we hosted her in Shanghai when she came to Shanghai to look for a job. And, and it was like decades ago. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and then she ended up working for Grab, and, then, and we, we caught up for lunch after a long, long time with no agenda. It was just lunch and said, Hey, you know, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm working for Grab. I say, Wow.
0: <laughs> Who knew? And then one thing just led to another. Yeah, but so this is really interesting to me, right? And we talked about it earlier, but that's a concrete, perfect example of. No expectations. You're not asking for anything in particular. You don't want to get paid back, for lack of a better term. I mean, I never care about that. But you just meet people. You do things for them. They ask you, hey, can you introduce me to Lisa or whatever her name? You know, you say, sure, and like two years later, you've forgotten about it. And then they come back, and then they're sitting in a really important position. And then they come back to you and say, hey, do you want to participate in this thing? And you're like, what is this thing? And it ends up being one of the biggest things in Asia. And you didn't ask for it. you just was there because you've always been giving anyway, right?
1: Yeah yeah i mean these are the kind of opportunities that come along and and you know back to grab and uber when when I was advising the two management team you know I find every single one of the people working there um extremely intelligent but that's a that's table stake right you that's know,
0: table they, stakes right
1: that's table stake what really set them apart was how driven they were in winning and they wanted to win against the other uh competitor they they wanted to Win the market, and it was a twenty four seven thing for them. Every single waking moment, um, they are thinking about how do I win in this, how how do I make my product better, how do I, how do I get more drivers on the platform, how do I get more riders on the platform.
0: So, so can, keep, without without naming either company because I, I really I'm indifferent. But what what were the biggest challenges that you saw? So you're mentoring them or advising them. You know, again, I don't want to give away too much proprietary information, but both of those companies are super prominent. I'm just curious how you mm. perceived the challenges there that sort of needed advice or required advice from an external party.
1: Um, so it's, it's still very much coming back to my, my original uh, profession, uh, the law. Um, I started out working as a lawyer. Um, but eventually gravitated towards public policy. Right. And, you know, my eight years at eBay really, um, I've spent most of my time thinking about, um, changing laws for, for eBay, for PayPal and for all of users, you know, whether they're buyers or sellers. Um, and that kind of experience was, be- was, um, was, uh, very valuable even for new technologies like um, ride sharing platform because at the end of the day, they're really a marketplace for drivers and riders. Right. You want a ride, somebody's selling the ride, and you know, Uber or Grab just match them. So, a lot of the lessons learned I, that I've learned from eBay became, um, I would say, I, I think they're relevant. And that helps. That's a starting point for me. So I could go into a situation where there's gravel, Uber, and then I can see, okay, I've seen something like this before um, yeah. when I was at eBay. And these are the likely response the regulators will have. Or these are the questions the regulators will ask. So what kind of um, uh, response we have? What kind of replies we have? What kind of um, actions can we take to make sure that the regulator will will feel comfortable um, and, and to let us operate. So that's my value add to companies like them. Um, and also, you know, the, the reason why a lot of our investment really is in marketplaces.
0: Right. I mean, because interesting, because you've come out of a background, eBay itself is just one of the original, but also one of the largest global marketplaces as well. So your deeply yep. embedded experience there must come in super handy, particularly when it comes from a legal perspective. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I joke that, you know, eBay was the original sharing economy.
0: Yeah, it was in a way, right? Do you want to buy my Pez? (laughs) Because I've got Pez if you want to buy some, right? Yep. Or my my broken laser pointer. (laughs) Yeah, or or my broken fan. (laughs) So do you, once you see like a really good deal, you know, you and Devin sit down, like do you have a process, an investment process that you look for? I was talking to an angel investor yesterday and this gentleman said to me, I pretty much know in the first like three to five minutes if I want to make an investment. Most of it's based on my gut feel and I really just want to make sure that, as you said, that the management team or the CEO in particular is just like super invested in this idea and is, um, is preoccupied with it. But do you have more of a detailed process? I do actually.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think we, we do have a process. Um, and you know, we, we would like to think that it's, uh, fairly rigorous, you know, we, Obviously, we ask for the usual thing. We ask for a meeting. We ask for a pitch deck. We ask for the investment report. We want to look at the cap table if they have one. Um, and then after that, we, you know, after the meetings and all this, we go back and do our own due diligence. You know, we'll, we'll do our own research if we do not understand the space well enough. Um, but if we, by the end of the, at, at the end of the day, really, it comes down to that. It's a, it's a gut feeling. It's a gut check. You know, yeah. you. you you meet this guy or you meet the whole team, talk to every single one on the, of the co-founders. Um, but um, the real litmus test really is that we believe that this, this team um, will have the drive, the determination to keep going even when they run out of money, even when they hit a major wall. Um, will they figure out a way to get around it? Um, that's That's what really matters for us.
0: Yeah, I mean I try to I try to tell I like this even when they run out of money. I try to tell entrepreneurs this all the time like no individual day is fatal. Right? I mean every it, it, it is though and it's it's something that actually I live by. It's like you wake up and it just feels like everything has gone wrong and that it's over. Everything's over and yet there is if you have a great idea and you really can execute well, I really believe that there's a solution in most cases. And if there isn't, then it's just, you know, just cut bait, right? It's just time to get out. But if it if there is a solution to whatever the today's problem is, just solve it and move on. It's just forward progress is like ninety percent of success as far as I'm concerned. Yep. Right. Um so when you guys do invest in syndicates, do you invest out of one entity? In other words, do you combine all the investments into one so that the cap table itself remains clean still, or are you investing with five or six different people and then five or six different people sit on a cap table? Um we, we've done both.
1: Okay. It really depends a lot on um, both the syndicate or the network, and also on the entrepreneurs themselves. I mean, some some entrepreneurs would prefer that you know the cap table is simple, um, and then they would say, "Hey, look, can can five of you come in together as a as a syndicate to do this?" So we've done we done both, and we're kind of um, you know we're easy either way. We're not not particularly perturbed as long as all the legal documentations are
0: figured out. I figured out. So you also yeah. mentioned that you you go and you do your due diligence on a sector when you're thinking about this investment process, right? Has there been anything new recently where you've had to do like a little bit of extra work, things that just, I don't want to say didn't make any sense, but were just so new that they required work because you didn't have a paradigm or a framework within which to look at them?
1: Um. Yeah, actually... Part of the reason why we moved to uh, Japan was because we we think Japan is a very interesting place where the demographic trends will throw up a lot of um, challenges, um, social and economic ones. and we think technology can solve some of them. so we we are here really looking to look for um, you know automated, technologies, you know, robotics, stuff like that, to make the life of the elderly just that better, um, a a little bit easier. We're also looking at um, areas in in medical technology where, you know, we'll address the more common ailments and and challenges that older people will have, whether it's dementia or, you know, other uh, um, cardiac problems that they have. So one of the interesting thing that came out um, during our search for this kind of technology was we looked at a, a startup um, that was trying to figure out how to make um, uh, dementia patients' life uh, slightly better. So obviously, we, we know nothing about that area. Um, it requires us um, to spend almost two to three weeks just reading up, on, on everything that's about dementia and, and talking to as many people as we can find who know a little bit more than we do. Um, so that that's the kind of um, work that consumes our time, which, you know, when, when I look at investment companies or funds that say they have a
0: spray and pray
1: strategy, right. Right. I
0: wonder how they do it. Well, know? they don't. I mean, oh, gosh, you've just opened a can of worms for me, right? Because... I, Look, one of the big benefits to me of being an angel investor, but just being an investor in, in general is that I get to learn a lot, right? So you would yes. never, I'm going to generalize, right? I'm going to get some things wrong here. I'm going to generalize a bit, but like you would never have the opportunity just being a regular person to learn about dementia and health technology and how to deal with the aging population in Japan if you just continued in your regular job, right? Yep. Um you know, doing public policy law or Devin just working in the financial services industry, right? And myself, the same thing. And yet, I think actually one of the greatest things about being an angel investor is you kind of get to pick and choose what you want to learn about, right? I mean, that's what makes it so much fun for me is that, you know, like I said, I sit and I talk to Jerome and Jerome runs a business in the education space, but he's also starting something in in kind of the working space as well. And I just get to talk to him and meet the people in that space, which I would never meet otherwise, and I learned so much about it that I can then later bump into somebody else and have just a yeah. knowledgeable conversation about it, and the same thing for for you, right
1: it, It's absolutely amazing. Um, you know so a lot of of my friends in, back in Singapore ask me, "Why in the world did I pick Japan when Devin and I both do not speak the language?" Right. Uh, <laughs> and you know we say, "Hey, look." What's a new challenge? You know, we yeah. we I, I used to be a I learned computer coding when I was in middle school. I, I learned a whole bunch of different languages just to get the computer to work. So I, I figured, hey, why can't I learn a new language to get my brains to work so I understand? It's not, so that, hard. Understand. Yeah, it's it's not just, that
0: hard. It's just not, and you're all, you're already multilingual, right? I mean, I don't know this yeah. for sure, but you you probably speak Mandarin as well. You speak English, and if yep. you can code, that's another language. You're probably not afraid of math. Like all these things are languages, right? And yep. I'm never afraid to go into a new situation where I don't speak the language because I feel like it's not easy per se, but boy, it's not that hard, yeah
1: yeah and and you know the amazing thing is that we actually got interesting validation from doing the research into this dementia related startup we We found out that if you know we found some medical research that says that if you really want to slow down um, or, or reduce the risk of getting dementia as you get older one of the best things you could do was to learn a new language because it actually forces new synapses to form in your brain.
0: Wow. Yeah, so, that's, that's, what,
1: you know, <laughs> that's That wouldn't have happened if we had not looked at that startup.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we can all benefit from a few more synapses firing in our brains. <laughs> Maybe I'm just talking <laughs> to right. myself, but yeah, for sure. So what is your view? You said earlier, I just want to go back to this. What you said earlier... Um, you wonder how people do this sort of spray and pray type of investing. Do you want to talk a little bit about your philosophy around that versus what I like to consider much more curated? I like to call it the Pixar of investing, right? You know, Pixar maybe makes or used to before when it was private would make one movie a year and it would just make a billion dollars, right? Because people used to say that the movie business was really hard. It was hit driven that you had to make 10 movies to get one good ones and that that one movie would pay for the other 10 that you knew were going to fail. And I kind of look at the, venture capital, or let's just say the startup investing world the same way. And I like to think actually that it can be curated, right? And if you look at some of the best investors in the world, they yep. definitely don't fail on a percentage basis as much as others do. So how, what's your view on, you know, spray and pray versus, I'm just going to be much more concentrated, but much more sort of curated.
1: Oh. Um, I'm I I'm, I'm lean towards the site of being focused. Um, I, I know online marketplaces. I know payments. Um, Devin and I have spent you know, quite a long time investing in, the, in public equities. So um, even right. then, we only focus on a few companies. We are both very um, strong believers of what Warren Buffett has, has um, you know, advised in terms of investment strategies. Invest in things that you know. Right. You know, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, what's the point? You know, you you probably don't know what the hell you're talking about. Right. Um. So so I like to when it comes to injury investment, is the same. It's part of our portfolio of investment. It would therefore follow the same investment strategy. We invest in stuff that we understand. Invest in stuff that we know, and we want to invest in stuff that we can explain to our grandmother very easily in three minutes. What exactly is happening? Yeah. Um. That allows us to improve our betting average. I think if you, if you, if you do a spray and pray kind of strategy, you know, yeah, maybe out of the two, three hundred that you invested, one or two of them turn out to be unicorns and then that's fine. You know, you, you will, you will cover all the losses of the rest of the 199. But I, I also think that's not efficient use of time and not efficient employment of capital.
0: Exist, so um, that was I, gonna, I preferred... Yeah, that right. was going to be my point. Sorry to interrupt you, but that was going to be my response was that whether it's efficient use of time or not is interesting to me, but it's a very inefficient use of capital to me. So I could sit across the table with someone who's spraying and praying yeah. and just say... Because you can make... In other words, you could make 999 investments and all of them could fail if you're spraying and praying, right? If you're not doing the right work. Yeah. And, and if you're not following your tenants, which, which say... Invest in what you know. And yeah, maybe that thousandth investment turns into Airbnb. But what if you don't get to the thousandth one? And then in reverse, what if your first one ends up being the one that was, you know, the super success where you made 400 times or 1,000 times your money? What were you doing with the other 900, not 499? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yep. Doesn't make any sense. And I think a lot of it is because um, a lot of the, I
1: call them fund managers, who, who adopt this type of um, strategy, that they're playing with other people's money.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm investing my own or our own money. Correct. Around yep, no, I, I get have it. be very efficient in how I deploy um,
0: my capital. Yeah, I mean, you have to be by definition. And I think, look, there was... <laughs> no one, this is really an obscure reference, right? But when I joined Wall Street in 1987, there was an off-Broadway play called OPM, okay? And that... Huh? And that OPM stood for other people's money. Yep. And that that entire sort of three-act play off-Broadway was just making fun of investment bankers and traders because they weren't playing with their own money. And I, and I think you make a really great point. When you're not dealing with your own resources, right, whether it's money or natural resources, you know, you can be as cavalier as you'd like. And you can have, you know, the silliest investment theories as well. And you can actually put statistics around it to say why it's the right thing to do. Um, yep. But the reality is if it's not other people's money, if it's your own capital and your own resources, you're going to be super efficient in the way you deploy them and also super smart about the way you think about investing them. Yep, absolutely.
1: And, and you know, that's also part of the reason why we have declined to take any investment. Uh, yeah. We have where people approach us and say, hey, look, um, you guys seem to be on to a good thing. Can right. we can we invest in Cosmic Cafe and you help us invest? And we told them no. I said, yeah. look, if... If there's good deals that I'm personally putting some money in, I will let you know. Right. You know, and then if you want to join, fine. If you that, but that's ultimately you know the your money and then you manage it and you decide. Um, but playing with other people's money, I think um, managers forget that they do all that fiduciary duty. Sometimes I think managers focus too much on their own personal gain. You know, they're looking at their carry interest and all of that. Um, and then we have the global financial crisis. There
0: you go. Yeah. So there's a there's a whole short-term paradigm versus you know a long-term view on things like this, and I I think you're right. Like one of the things that Jerome not taught me but really put a fine point on was this whole concept of aligned interests, right? Yep. So if you're if you're investing your own capital. By definition, your interests are aligned with yourself and then your interests are aligned with the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial team in which you're investing. And Mm -hmm. you're super happy to tell your friends or even people that you don't know, I'm investing in, you know, pick a company. It doesn't matter, right? I'm investing in grab. And they say, okay, I don't believe that story. And you say, fine. Fine. You've done your job though, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then you don't owe them anything either. So it doesn't skew your, alignment, it may skew your opinion. You may think, oh, maybe I didn't think about this the right way, but it doesn't skew your alignment, right? And that's actually more important to me. But so do you think, and do you think, this is a a really good segue into something else I wanted to ask you. Do you think this is sort of a paradigm shift in the way sort of early stage companies get funded, right? So in the old days, and they're not that far away, but you know, the sort of seed stage investing was still managed by institutions, right? I mean, I know that angels have been around for a while, but not as... There were very few people that just did angel investing as their main sort of job, for lack of a better term. But but I think that's happening a lot now. Do you think this is a paradigm change or do you think this is just a trendy thing to do that some people are going to come in and then they're just going to disappear in a few years?
1: Um, I think it's the early days. Um, I think we are seeing more angel investors um, because... There are are way too much correlations between the different asset classes, and as a result, it's very difficult for you to say, you know, if I'm in bonds and I'm in equities and I'm in real estate and I'm in some cash, my portfolio is balanced. It's hard, and then I should get a certain rate of return at the end. The problem is the correlation has already happened. Um, There's nothing we can do to change it. Right. Um, And now investing in early-stage startup is something new. It's a new asset class. Um, people are jumping onto it because there's way too much liquidity out there. It's just like people investing into red wine and, you know, for a period of time, I think maybe five years ago, there were a lot of investment going into modern Chinese art. Um,
0: I don't know. Fair
1: enough. It's too early. I think think we'll see in maybe 10 years' time to see who are the people who are still
0: around. Yeah, so... I'll I'll leave, I'll leave on this, right? I, I think actually this is a paradigm change, and that's why I wanted to ask the question. I think over time you're going to see a lot more people saying, and again, because it's an asset class, right? It, this is not just like a new thing to do. And I, I think it's slightly different, and I think you would agree, actually, that investing in Chinese art and investing in wine is something that's going to be massively... Um, you know, cyclical. In other words, it's going to happen for a short period of time, and then are people going to go away? But I don't think you can build a lifetime sort of investment thesis around, um, you know, just making money or hundreds of people making a living by investing in, you know, Australian wine or obscure French wines or Italian wines. And and actually, I think I would say for sure, if a friend asked me, should I allocate a certain amount of my portfolio to investing in wine? I would say no, and that may be a mistake, but but I just don't think there is enough. Readily available information, credible information. There's no process around Like I just don't think there's enough of an ecosystem around it to to warrant taking part of your um, net worth and putting it into that. But from my perspective, and I'd love to know yours, I think for angel investing into sort of new style companies, I don't think that's going to change. And I do think that I would make the, not recommendation, but if someone came to me and said, should I allocate some of my portfolios, some of my asset allocation into startup companies with some caveats? I would say absolutely. And I'm just wondering what your opinion is.
1: Well, um, Michael, don't get me wrong. Um, I, I, ref- I didn't want to make a, a call. Yeah, I didn't to think did. going Yeah, but this is going to stick around. No, know, this, this trend is going to stick around. Yeah. Um, it's because I think investment as in anything else can be kind of fetish. Um, you know, right now every country in the world wants to be the startup, the next Silicon Valley. So naturally a lot of rich people will be looking at this and say, hey, yeah, you know, it is an interesting emerging asset class. Let's put some of the money there. But, um, most of the startups will fail. 99% of them yeah, will fail. And the question is, how many of these people, how many of the investors will have the guts to stay around? You know, stay around. I, I think, I hope they will stay around because I do agree with you that investing in, in startup, Im- investing in the emerging technology is a great way to, to allocate your asset. And if you're building a legacy for yourself or for your children, it's a great way to, to spend, to, to invest those money. Because you never know, you know, you'll be creating something new or your stuff will create something new because of you helping them. Um and and I hope there will be more people who's got the money to allocate to to early stage startups to to come out to to go to those startup events, talk to startup entrepreneurs, and invest in stuff that they like and invest in team that they like. Um, as a way to to take a bet for the future. That's how I say.
0: Look, I think that is the perfect optimistic note on which to end, and I think that that's the great <laughs> ending for this type of conversation is. Yeah, you can convince people to make a bet on the future. And and I think we live in a unique period of time, right? In the sense that a mm-hmm. 100 years ago, there were startup companies. They didn't call them that, right? And even 150 years ago, any time yep. that someone started, you know, whether it was Standard Oil at some point, was a startup company, right? Even Creative Technologies yeah. was or, a startup this,
1: company. this little light bulb company. Com-
0: <laughs> yeah, this little light bulb company was also a startup. but it every it the accessibility for investment into those companies didn't exist and i think that's one of the big differences today and and maybe the internet gives us the ability to do that too but it does bring deep hope for the future in the sense that for lack of a better term it democratizes the ability for so many other people to sort of benefit from you know just the availability of that investment as an asset class and i do think that that's really an optimistic way to look at um and but a realistic way too but i think it's a really optimistic way to look at the future and i I like that whole idea of it gives you the ability to invest in the future and leave a good legacy for all the people around you anyway um like i really want to thank you for taking the time this morning for doing this i'm sure that we'll have you back and you know the conversation for me has been really enlightening and also just really pleasant so thank you very much Stephen. Thank you
1: very much, Michael. You have a good
0: day. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.